Hello, my friends. Today on the podcast, you're in for a treat. I sat down with Jana Romer, a uh, longtime yogi and yoga teacher living down in Venice, California, although I met her about eight years ago here in Edmonton, where I'm based. And uh, Jana and I got a chance to sit down and catch up and talk uh, about life, about yoga philosophy, about what it means to bring that into our lives in a practical way. Uh, we talk about relationships and communication, what's amazing about that, what's hard about that, uh, the fruit that's on the other side of really navigating those difficulties. Uh, she shares a little bit about her passion uh, around astrology. And uh, yeah, she just, in a really lovely, simple way, lays out her journey in a way that I think is going to be really interesting and of value to you. So I hope you enjoy. Take it easy. Lay back. Here's the podcast. You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper. Yeah, uh, for me, life is uh, interesting. I've basically been on a year sabbatical. Um, haven't worked uh, tradition in a traditional way, but obviously been busy with uh, a lot of writing and content and um, a lot of meeting with people and then planning and getting things sort of organized for what's next. But uh, uh, I feel kind of disconnected from the world right now. Just not, not in any kind of rhythm or routine, not in any kind of uh, organized or institutionalized spaces. And so everything feels sort of ungrounded and uh, good. <laughs> it, it's really good and it, it's it's time to kind of put some some roots down and, and allow the rubber to hit the road and start moving forward in some new ways and so it's just that transition piece of of the, the beauty of not having some of that routine and structure that society is so uh, kind of saturated with and um, but also yeah. knowing like it's not you know the the analogy of spending our whole lives on the mountaintop meditating it's 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 great to be in those those spaces of, of um, spaciousness and 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 being in touch with what's deeper and subtler about life, and then it's to bring that wisdom back into the living of life. So that's that's the yeah. transition I'm in right now. Beautiful, yeah. And any big transformation, I feel like there's a really important phase of like discombobulation and confusion and an upheaval that's absolutely necessary in order to carve a new pathway for something new to arrive so it seems like a, a good place it's funny you say you went camping and caught a cold because I just came back from um, Big Bear which is about three hours outside of LA and the same thing I got there and my whole nervous system was so happy to be in the woods and then my nose started running and now I've got this cold and my ears plugged but it actually feels like I was cleansing the city out of me <laughs> you know like just like cleansing so much of the pollution of living in Los Angeles and, and uh, now coming back to work, it's, I think what it's saying to me is you slowed down now, stay slow. Cause I'm 34 weeks pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have to slow down. But, mm-hmm. And is that number two for you? Yeah. Number two. Yeah. Be five how, years apart. Yeah, five years ago. Yeah. Did you have a plan for that? I, I know I, I've had a few <laughs> conversations with people around, them wanting the perfect distance between siblings and and other people obviously having it be less much less planned but for you guys what what was that uh, having the second one the the plan or the the choice to do that about you know it's interesting I always imagined that I would have two close together and then when I became a mother to Freddie my my almost (laughs) five-year-old 
Um, I was so um, taken aback by what motherhood is and how, like what it entails and the intensity of, of being a mother and doing a good job at it. Like I didn't want to half-ass it. And at the same time, I have such a strong purpose in life that I recognized very early that if I were to have a second, I wouldn't be able to find the balance between motherhood and, you know, activating my purpose. And, and um, then there was some, you know, personal stuff that came in that we, my husband and I, um, we're both a solid no on a second child. <laughs> like, no, not doing it. And then um, there just came a point where, you know, I think he was the first one that was like, should we have a second? And I was like, nope, nope. And then I, and then I came around and said, maybe we should have a second. And he said, nope, nope. <laughs> and then um, we both were aligned and he basically looked at me and I got pregnant. <clears throat> so it was really quick and easy when we were both a big yes on it. And we're, we're a big yes now too. And I think five years is going to be really nice because um, Freddie, my older one, is in school during the day and I'll be able to have that really sweet time with this one and the way that my work has shifted. Freddie taught me to not need to be present to earn income. Like he taught me about passive income and how to restructure what I do in such a way that I can work in concentrated um, time bundles and then have a lot of freedom. And so, um, that, that pressure on my creativity to think of, of a completely new way to work so I could spend time with him is making it possible to have a second one where I can still live my purpose and I can still be of service in the world the way that I feel called to be. And then also have a lot of time to be a mother and, and a partner and all that, you know, I'm, I'm getting much better at, um, prioritizing fun <laughs> where that wasn't really, I was pretty serious. I was like a really hard worker, like always something. And I still have that in me, but I also prioritize pleasure a bit more. Was that always true for you when you were younger? Were, were you, were you serious doing your homework and, and kind of taking things seriously in that way? Or was that sort of an adult uh, adaptation? Um, I think for me, it comes down more to purpose. And I know it sounds crazy, but as like a four and five-year-old, I recognized that I came for a reason. And I was really pissed at myself for not remembering the reason why I was here. But that was something that was at the forefront. And so I was very serious. You know, I grew up on an acreage and outside of Craven, Saskatchewan. I was very serious. I always was seeking from a really young age and I spent a lot of time alone, you know, asking really big questions that normally five-year-olds aren't asking, like, <laughs> where do we come from and what is this all about and why are we here and what is infinity and, you know, um, so I think that is what carried through and um, the extreme difference in my, in my personality and in my way of being in the world uh, dependent on whether I was in, in, on my path and purpose versus doing something because this is, you know, after I finished university, I had to get a job. And so I got this marketing job and it was for a really, I mean, it was WestJet. It was like Canada's sweetheart company working in the marketing department and I was miserable. And I, I loved, um, yoga and meditation and philosophy and all of that stuff, but I just couldn't imagine making a career out of it. And then one day I just was like, no, that's it. I have to do it. 
I mean, I broke my back. So I was forced to lay in a hospital bed <laughs> for 10 like days. <laughs> yeah, so I was forced to lay in a hospital bed for 10 days. And, and that was really the turning point. And that was in my, if you follow any astrology, that was in my Saturn return. So it was at a very key juncture where life tends to say, okay, what are you doing here? Are you going to grow up or are you going to carry on? <laughs> so... I'm curious, this is a question I'm often asking because I really get the sense that all of us have that kind of curiosity, the seriousness of what are we really here for, even from a young age. And some of us, that, that kind of gets planted in us in a way where it's, it's, it's present and, and clear to us throughout our lives. Like it's a, it's a thread through the tapestry that we can track back and we see that that's been sort of central for us in our lives. And I'm curious what you think the difference is for you as someone who has chosen consciously to, to make that your priority in life versus what looks like, at least in Western culture, the, the majority of us getting maybe too distracted or too invested in whatever else we think life is about to not take that question seriously. Like what's the difference yeah. between people that go, no, I'm going to actually lay this this more uh, familiar, this maybe more stable or more accepted life aside for something that uh, at least at first feels like, you know, jumping off a cliff. Like, what do you? <laughs> oh my goodness. I think that's almost, that's nearly an impossible question to answer because on. one of the things that I do is astrology. And so when I look at astrology and I look at somebody's natal chart, you can see that everybody is so diverse and different. The way we process information, the way we perceive our and receive our environment, the way we um, live inside of our emotions or live in our, our logical mind or, or the way we crave safety or relationship or all the different things, it's so multifaceted and none of us are the same because the planets are never in the same place twice. And so our initial imprint, our first nature, as Carl Jung used to call, call it, is unique unless you're born at the same time as a twin because it would have to be the same time in the same place and even that it expresses differently and so I think for me I can speak about me but I don't know if I could speak about the other people so as clearly for me it was either depression or path it was depression or path and every time I, I, I and, it, and it's hard to say that anything was off path because it helped me with recognition of when I was on path um, but for me, when I was misaligned with my purpose, or if I was out of alignment with my morals and values, I did a very small stint in oil and gas, believe it or not, as this like earth loving hippie. Um, it was, it was, um, yeah, the choice was depression or jump, you know, and uh, it, it didn't, it, one thing that never worked for me was the kind of routine that w where you wake up at the same time every day and you you, I mean, the typical life of go start the coffee pot, jump in the shower, do the thing. That's never worked for me ever, 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 ever. And um, so that was the initial charge to break out of the standard societal model of nine to five. And then the other thing that didn't work for me was this idea that our income would be potentially dictated by an outside source. And so when I worked for these other companies in the early phases of my career, 
I watched how the decisions that I made would make certain people millions <laughs> and other decisions that I made, you know, and it didn't affect my income. And I just thought like, that's, that's baloney. That doesn't work for me. Um, if I have the ability to pull a lever that's worth a couple million dollars for somebody, I mean, in WestJet, you know, I worked in flight scheduling, scheduling. So if we tweak the schedule in just the right way, the bottom line was huge. And, um, that also, that didn't really sit well with me either. And so entrepreneurship was modeled by my father and it was shown to me, uh, potentials and possibility. And, um, when I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I mean, I, I worked on my own before then, but when I moved to Los Angeles and I watched the way creatives here are, uh, self-made, it was so inspiring just to see that, uh, the rules are old paradigm. The rules are limiting. The rules are, um, uh, they kind of, they, you know, that nine to five, here's your salary structure, um, seemed oppressive to me, um, from the beginning. And, and also when I was sitting at my desk at WestJet and like, I'm not dissing WestJet at all. It was an amazing company. Like everything about it was incredible. Um, but when I would sit at my desk and do this work, I felt like a lion trapped in a cage. Like there was something so big inside of me that was like screaming, get me out of here every day that I went to work. And, um, and it wasn't actually the work because my analytical mind loves, loved that. Like my analytical mind, I can do math and numbers and, and sort patterns and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I just needed to not be stuck in front of a computer. I needed to be interacting with people. I needed to be of service. And so that lion inside of me was so much louder than any benefit <laughs> of the, that, that typical nine to five structure. So I don't know. I think perhaps people have, um, from, from the perspective of the way that the mind works, I think what we're modeled to, what we have seen as a proven path plays a pretty important role in how we play out our lives. So, um, and, and it's difficult when that program in the subconscious mind is so strong that this is how it works. It's difficult to imagine a different life. Um, I also think that safety is very comforting for a lot of people. I think that knowing how much you're going to have coming every month <laughs> is very stabilizing. And, um, you know, I can say the opposite where I don't know what's coming every month can be very destabilizing. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, I, I don't know really why, why people don't, cause I encourage people to make that jump all the time. <laughs> well, you mentioned this kind of somewhat of a fork in the road of kind of depression and path. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more, you know, I have some thoughts and theories about what depression really is. Um, you know, I know we, we like to pathologize and, 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 and then treat symptoms uh, as sort of a way of doing things in Western culture. But uh, for me, there's something uh, meaningful about depression. There's something it, it reveals okay. to us if we're willing to listen. Yes. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on what that depression was like for you and how it helped you see the path. Cause I think that's, one of the things, if, if we're not just going to, oh, this is a bad feeling, how do I make it go away? That depression can really reveal important aspects of, of what we're here for. 
Um, but we have to listen for that. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> My thoughts get me in trouble sometimes about Perfect. this. <laughs> um, okay, so let's break it down to a nervous system response. Uh, like go way almost like body technical. Um, our uh, nervous system is this ancient uh, recording device and information giver. And when we have a, a great relationship with our nervous system, we also tend to have a great relationship with our intuition. And the nervous system is, I think the autonomic nervous system is connected to our divinity because the, you know, you even just look at the function of breathing, we can choose how our breath goes, or if we hold our breath, there's a function that will knock us out and then breath will start again. Or the function of our endocrine system and our digestive system are typically understood as this autonomic or this automatic system that is designed to keep us alive. And barring any great disturbances will continually work to bring us back into health. And so the autonomic nervous system, which is then signaling our, our hormones, which create our state or our mood or what we feel, um, is constantly uh, feeding us an experience, an inner experience that is attempting, us, attempting to guide us into safety or attempting to guide us into greater health. And when we are doing something that is out of alignment with our safety and our health and then our divine purpose, the autonomic nervous system triggers our function. So it might start as um, irritable bowel syndrome, let's say. And let's say somebody's in a bad relationship and every time that that person calls, they all of a sudden need to run to the bathroom and the autonomic nervous system is saying, get out, get out, get out. And it's showing you get out by making you have to go and evacuate your bowels immediately. So to me, this is like a very clear communication. And then anxiety, anxiety, you step into a room, it's not a safe room for you to be in. You start to feel uncomfortable, you ignore it, the anxiety gets louder we're trained to be socially um, composed and that social composure then is trying to create this external facade of I'm okay and the inside system is pushing the gas on your heart and the heart starts to race but we're composed on the outside and now we've got these two things happening separate from each other and the part of us that gets us to take action is ignoring the part of us that's demanding action to happen right now. And if we continually put ourselves in these situations, it starts as nervousness, nervous energy, discomfort, maybe some thoughts, then it turns into panic attacks, you know, like it escalates until finally one day it feels like somebody is having a heart attack and they're like, what is going on? And take themselves to the hospital. No laughter at all, actually. They take themselves to the hospital thinking they're having a heart attack and it's, it's an, a panic attack. And if we trace these things back, there's so many times that the, the cue from the nervous system in the body is much more subtle. The same with depression. I don't want to go. Like what's depression oftentimes? Like for it's, it might start off as resistance to life or fighting reality. It might start off as a traumatic event or, or you know, there's so many different ways. But I think more commonly depression like creeps in on people. And it's this, this resistance where the body is like, not going, I'm not going, I don't want to go. And now you don't want to get out of bed and you're getting fed the information. Don't go that direction. Don't go that direction. Or 
the other side is the stuckness. And this is more from a traumatic event where the PTSD, you're replaying the, the historical event again and again and again. And so you keep dosing yourself with the chemicals and the hormones that keep you stuck in that, that, that place. And so the, the nervous system and the endocrine system is this very actually quite elegant communication mechanism within the body that is attempting to uh, guide you into a direction that feels good through discomfort, <laughs> through discomfort, because we don't want that discomfort. But then we have the intellectual, which is the slowest operating system that we have. We have the intellectual system that's saying, no, this should feel good. You should be here. This is how life goes. Here's the structure that you follow. Here's the path that you know, the promise, <laughs> the promise, like get the education, get the job, find the partner, find the house, have the kids, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, what more and more people are discovering is that promise is a lie. And if we can do a better job, I, I, I refer to it as uh, we're either inside of our nervous system or we're outside of our nervous system. And when we're outside of our nervous system, the nervous system bosses us around, tells us what to do, pushes us over, knocks us off center. And, you know, it's like this bossy little um, inner guiding system that we don't like and develop a poor relationship with. Or we're living inside our nervous system. And that inner radar, that inner guidance is so on point and so on key that it's difficult for me at this point, like if I walk into a room and I get a no, I'm like, okay, peace, I'm out of here. You know, if I'm in a, in a, a work environment and there's not a natural fit, cause there's no trying, there's no trying. When you're listening, you don't have to try at all. You don't have to try and fit. You just belong. And one of the key human needs as much as water and shelter and food is a sense of belonging. And when you hit that sense of belonging, then you know, it, it's like a, it's like a deep, ancient, infinite, eternal knowing that you're right where you need to be. And so, yeah, I think that when we are talking about all of these, you know, depression and anxiety and PTSD, we're being asked to look at something and to face something and to, you know, have almost like a reckoning with ourselves where... Um, we need to break out of the hypnosis of society and listen to the, the subtle wisdom that 100% of absolutely every single one of us has access to, like without a doubt. It's just how thick is the program? How thick is the, is the should? <laughs> so... Yeah. Those are my thoughts on that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in just everything of the work I've done personally and professionally um, <clears throat> tells me that it's actually all built to work and that the nervous system and how it, it, it recreates and amplifies our, un, our unresolved pieces from the past is in support of our integration. It, it's, it's bringing things that are not addressed yet back up, not to make us miserable or to to drag us through the mud again, but because that's that in, in the moment of the nervous system being activated in that way is the moment in which we can work with those patterns. When yes. they're not activated, we can't actually work with them. And so, you know, to, to have people shift their perspective on 
pain and discomfort, especially things that are associated with their past. Yeah. To recognize that these things are not recurring in their life because they're bad or because, you know, life is unfair. It's just how we're built that when things land in the body and are not resolved for any number of reasons, they will keep coming back because the body is built to sort it all out because that's how we grow and evolve. That that's really the only way. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. One of the other things that I, that I find really interesting is that um, it, it's sort of like, as you, as you shift that perspective around pain and discomfort and, and, and things about the past that are hard, uh, you start to see how everything is in support of you. And, and I don't say that as sort of a, a warm, fluffy, esoteric, like it actually in the physical world, that's how reality is built. It, it's mm-hmm. built to support itself. And that I see the, and actually the, if you've done any research around the polyvagal theory, like they're learning about how, how the fear response in the body works and, and the kind of pathways at which we activate this, the stress response in the body. I see it as this kind of, it's, it's this uh, system that's built to do two things. One part of that, I don't even call it the fear system anymore. It's the activation system. Because in athletes, actually, you, you can study athletes. And athletes that, that um, tend to suffer under pressure and athletes that succeed under pressure are experiencing the same physiological responses in the body. Mm-hmm. One has a story about that response that says, this is bad, I'm in trouble, failure. And the other one says, readiness, preparation, excitement, opportunity. And it's really the story that's the main difference in terms of what happens in the body. And so that system is there to A, protect us and keep us safe, and B, to to activate and ready us for uh, sort of a next edge of evolution and growth. And and it's built to do both of those things. And as human beings, we're now in in a sort of a cultural context in which we actually don't need to fight for our life to survive for the most part. That stage of human development is, is mostly gone and, and where it does still exist, it's mostly us creating it. And, and then there's this shift of, of what are we using that activation system for? Not really to survive anymore, although that old story is still there. But when we shift out of that old story, we actually begin to use all of the energy and intelligence of that activation system for integration for healing and for evolution of, of, of ourselves and then of course because of how we're built relationally the people that we're connected to so yeah. i just get excited about talking about this stuff and, <laughs> and and that you know more and more people are getting it but there's still so much kind of blinders and justifiably so it's hard to see the, the truth of what we've been holding and, and, and putting together but yeah. that it's so beautiful when we get that it's all really built to support us and to work yeah. Yeah. That's where the magic lives. You know, there was a point in my own relationship with my suffering where I, you know, I think every spiritual seeker in the beginning phases, they get free. There's like a, a, a time of liberation where everything feels good and you get a really good feeling of it. And then it's like the second wave comes in and crashes and takes you down in a whole new way. And then you have to find your way back out again. And um, I, I distinctly remember a point where I, where that shift came in, where then that, that wave would come in of here's some more work for you to do. And I got excited. Like instead of letting the wave crash me into the shore, I like met it with my shoulder. It was like, what do you want from me? <laughs> you know, like, what are we doing here now? And, and I think, you know, if I look at some of the Buddhist teachings, this is where we can 
really be free of suffering because if we can recognize that these things that we've categorically like put into the category of suffering is actually a pathway to liberation, then suffering ceases to truly exist. Um, uh, not to say that I haven't gone through, definitely gone through big phases of suffering, but how I relate and how I approach it has definitely shifted. And it's exciting now. I'm like, oh, good, I get to see this. Yeah. Oh, I get to... I get to figure this out. I'm being initiated again or whatever language you want to use. And then often what I have noticed on top of that is that the, the time frame is shorter because instead of fighting my life, I'm like, what, do you, what? Okay. And then instead of blaming other people, like I'm in, I'm married. So <laughs> it's so easy to just blame the partner instead of blaming him for anything. I'm taking it home to myself and I'm not doing it in a way of poor me or where I'm excusing him of behavior because the other thing that happens with that, and at least in my case, I, I really locked out my partner as somebody who does this type of work on himself as well, is that we can have conversations that both of us at one point in our life would have shied away from, but now we're, we're keen to, to go in on the, the discomfort and I can really hear him and he can really hear me and we're able to uh, accelerate that, that learning process by doing it together while being sovereign in our own responsibility for how it's showing up within ourselves. Hmm. I mean, yeah. that, that's so huge. What you just said there is like that in a way is the holy grail of relationship. And, and I'm wondering if you could speak to um, has it always been that way between you two or what's made the difference for you where you now, you know, like, I think there's, there's a, there's a fundamental level of choice we can make in relationship where you say, I am solely responsible for what occurs in here. Even if someone on the surface, it looks like they are being the bad person doing the bad thing. I am still just in a, in an incredibly practical way. I am wholly responsible for this piece. Yeah. And, and then to know that, that that's true on both sides. And what's also true is that we are deeply in this together. Yeah. You know, like, how do, you, how do you choose that or cultivate that? Or, I mean, I think anyone looking to get into a relationship or already in a relationship wants to know the answer to that question. So <laughs> go ahead. Well, to be totally honest, okay, so our relationship started really high on love. You know, we, we had a, a hot beginning. It was, it was, it was hot. It was lustful. It was not forget forbidden, but it was long distance. Like he's American, I'm Canadian. There were things about it. We were open in the beginning as all relationships are. I mean, whenever I say that people are so shocked, you're in an open relationship. Like, wait, did you ever start in a hundred percent commitment with anybody? And because we were long distance, it made more sense to, you know, have more freedom, but it was hot. And then we, up until uh, giving birth to our first son, <laughs> it was romantic. There was so much love. But before um, Freddie came in, we didn't really have to look at a lot of stuff. There were little things, but we just kind of pushed them aside because the love was greater than the little things. And then when um, we became parents, those little things became huge. And the stuff that was able to be either repressed or resented became cancerous in the marriage. 
And um, there was definitely uh, a point where, oh man, I felt like a victim, you know, of the marriage. And I, I remember being at a, <laughs> my husband actually hates when I talk about this, <laughs> but he's getting better and he understands why I do because it is so helpful. But there was a point where um, I sat with myself and I thought, how did I get myself here? You know, I'm in another country. I've got this child. I'm with a man that I don't recognize. I, I don't have all of the resources to, to leave and, and, you know, and, and I, and I never imagined myself being a single mother, you know? And so there was this unraveling of identity that happened within the relationship. And simultaneously, he was feeling all of his own things, you know, like when a relationship starts to unravel, there's two sides, you know, he felt that I was cold and withdrawn and, and I was, you know, cause I was like, Oh, how do I get out of here? And there was a point where I recognized that, you know, I grieved the ideal relationship. I grieved uh, marriage as I thought marriage would be. I, I got over the idea that I would be living the fairy tale. You know, I had to, I had to like grieve and purge all the ideals of, of what that marriage looked like or, or divorce, you know, who took it there. We call it the dark night of our marriage's soul. And, um, in that I, um, discovered that I would be okay. And in the discovery that I would be okay, no matter what the outcome, like I could be a single mother, I could be a Canadian living in California without the help of a marital visa, you know, like I had to get okay with all of these things. And then when I spoke to him, I spoke from a completely different place. Like I didn't speak to him from fear or from neediness or codependency or any of those things, I spoke from my power and, and, and he <laughs> like, he was like taken aback by that, I think. And he, where I was trying to figure out how to get out, he was like, there's no way I'm leaving this family. There's no way. And I think that's one thing that really helped is I was out and he was in like, he, he was a hundred percent in. And so when I came to him with my complaints at this, from this okayness and this powerful place, he said, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. And we started to seek help from not a typical uh, path. We did, um, <laughs> I, I've been studying Dr. Joe Dispenza for quite some time and I'd put us as a couple on a wait list and he, um, Joe, the, the workshop started on, I think Thursday and on Wednesday we found out that we got in and I had already committed to a charity event and I was like advertised around Venice and so there's no way I could go. And I looked at him and I was like, if you want this marriage to work, you're going to go to that workshop. <laughs> I knew, I knew that if he could hear Dr. Joe's message that it would shift things because you, you can't go see Joe Dispenza without changing. Mm -hmm. And he did. And he came back and he was lit. He was like, Oh my God, I see how I was investing in my emotions of the past and replaying these stories and 
putting it on you and da, 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 da. And I was like, okay, there's hope. <laughs> and then um, he ended up like going so deep down the path of Dr. Joe Dispenza and we spent way more money than we ever thought we would on a marriage counselor. But this marriage counselor was like, he was a, he was a uh, kind of a psychic, <laughs> not really, but he just, his, hyperintuitive. He, yeah. He's, he's like our, we call him our spiritual grandpa. He's like this masculine father figure that both of us craved. And he addressed the way that he spoke to us. He never put fault on either of us for what was happening. And that was very liberating. To, it's not your fault that the marriage isn't working. It's, this is something that you've received through lineage, through experience, through trauma, through whatever it is. That's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to move it. And um, so that was really powerful. And over the course of doing this, you know, uh, my husband did a lot of inner child work. He'd never done that before. I did a lot of, <laughs> I, I was sitting on my high horse with him. You know, I was like, I've been doing the work. It's not me, <laughs> you know? And this, this counselor that we went to, he said like a three sentence uh, piece of feedback to me that rocked me to my core. You know, he, he like rocked me out and I, recognized how horrible I was being in the marriage, not completely unintentionally, you know, like, yeah. And so we both kind of went back to our own corners and the way that, the way that we were approaching this was, and, and, and my approach when I opened up this very uncomfortable conversation was I am in a relationship with this human being forever now because we share a child. And I want both of us to be as healthy as possible. And so no matter what that is going to take, I'm in for it because we are modeling behavior for this little boy and how we show up in whatever type of contract that we have, whether it's a marriage or a co-parenting contract, how we show up is going to shape this little boy's reality. And, uh, and what we discovered in that journey was uh, a pathway back into wholeness for each of us as individuals and uh, recognition of uh, what well, my husband says for him, it's like learning how to manage his own expectations. <laughs> He's like a marriage is just about learning how to manage expectations. So, you know, where he where his expectation was one way and then I was showing up another way that created disappointment in him. But how I was showing up was the best that I could and he maybe wasn't able to recognize me the way that I was. And then I was putting, like I was projecting upon him what I expected a man to be rather than allowing him to show me what he is as a man. And so that, that, that fracture between each of our individual expectation of what a marriage should look like and what was actually blossoming and coming through in a really healthy way prevented us from seeing the gift that was there because we had these ideas of what it should be. And when we were able to strip away the idea, it's like, it's actually going right back to um, the career path. <laughs> you know, like when we're able to strip away what it should be or what society promises, then we're able to see what it could be. And shifting that, that should into a could is huge. And now we have 
so much more space for our quirks, <laughs> our weirdness. Um, there's lot, a lot more listening and respect. And um, I honestly, I honestly don't think that we could be in the relationship the way that we are if my husband didn't show me that it was possible mm. to really give somebody that kind of freedom. Like I, I, I might've initiated the discomfort, but he's the one that showed up in that discomfort. And so, and you know, my high horse where I thought I was all right now, I'm like, Oh dear. He's, he's like championing like his life in such a way where I'm like, I got to step up, <laughs> you know? And, and so I think that's another thing that's important to remember is sometimes we lead and sometimes we follow. Yeah. And if one of us, if one person in the relationship can always desire the best of the marriage or the best of the relationship, and then there's a trust that that leadership or that desire is going to take us to the next phase, then, uh, then we can get somewhere. And I have to say, like going through that dark night of the soul of our marriage has created so much more respect and love and trust. Like I know he's my person. Like I know he's got my back. I know that there's going to be hard times. I know things are going to come up, like especially welcoming a second child. Like things are going to change around here. <laughs> They're going to change huge. And we're going to meet parts of ourselves that we, that have been laying dormant perhaps for lifetimes <laughs> as this other little creature, <laughs> this other little being enters our lives. Um, but I think now with that, that foundation of trust and respect, we'll be able to navigate and, and support. <laughs> like, why do we have business coaches and life coaches and, you know, coaches for everything? And it's like full pot to have a counselor in your marriage. You know, like, why is it hard to be like, we don't need counseling? Well, actually, no. Like the most successful businesses have advisors, <laughs> you know, like we're not trained on how to be successful in marriage. So like, Let's get some help in that realm. You know, that's a worthy investment. Amazing. I mean, I heard a few things that I just wanted to kind of pull out because I think they're just gold. Okay. You know, with, with your husband. Um, what's his name again? Mm. Excuse me. His name is Mark. Mark, yeah. I met Mark. We, we had uh, that meal yeah. uh, ages back when I was down in LA. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> You know, when, when Mark shows up in those difficult moments, what, what I kind of feel and hear is just inside and it may even be a, a kind of intuitive thing but he has a context for the relationship that's able to hold the difficulties that show up mm. that that's that's what happens is going in we consciously or unconsciously create a context for our relationships and if that context can't hold what life might bring not just what we can expect or what we think it might bring but anything that life can bring if the context can't hold all of that, then inevitably we'll get to a threshold where we go, this isn't worth it. Like the mm. context I've created for this relationship doesn't justify the difficulty we're in right now. And I really believe that we're able to create a context for our relationships that can hold all of life, known and unknown. And, and then, then that's a real marriage, whether it's a romantic marriage or whether it's a marriage of business or whether it's a marriage of community. It's like that context is so key and, and really, we're not told about it. We're not educated on it. We're not, you know, there's no embodied examples or very few at least where people can guide us. And that's what you're talking about, like having a consultant or a, a, an elder or someone you can go, hey, I don't have a clue here. What's going on? Uh, it's yeah. such a powerful piece. It's really the foundation for everything. And, and, you know, we're in this sort of 
fast food, fast paced world that doesn't really care about the foundation. You know, it cares about how quickly can we bear fruit? How quickly can we, you know, uh, create results? And the other piece that I really loved about what you were sharing is that no matter how good the the honeymoon is, we're going to get to a point where that energy ebbs or subsides. And then we're left with the difficulties of life without the warm fuzzies. And it's a crossroads for us to bail or, you know, pull the ejection seat or to really sink more deeply into what we came into in the first place, which, which really is about love. And then to me, that's not actually a good feeling. Love is love can show up as a good feeling, but love is so much more than the good feelings that it can bring. And that those crossroads are, there's this analogy that I heard one time and it's so like he's talking about rocking you to the core. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone was talking about how in life we're building. It's it's sort of innate to what we're doing here in life is that we're building something internally and externally. And that you can look at what we're building, like building bridges. We're building connections and transport uh, kind of structures so that life can move more, more broadly, more deeply, more greatly. And many of us have, have not learned how to complete our bridges. Mm. We start a bridge, we start to build, it, it gets too hard. We look, we're like, it's too far away to the next, you know, piece of land. And we go, okay, screw this. This bridge is no good. And then we start a new bridge. And, and a lot of people find themselves at the end of their life and they look back and they've built a hundred half bridges, essentially useless, that they don't transport. And that, that every relationship, every endeavor is going to have us at that crossroad where it doesn't look like it's worth it. And that in me, there is something, even if we come to be clear that it's, a relationship is over, that there's still a completion there to take care of. There's still yeah. the finishing of whatever bridge we started and then we can move on and, and we, we develop these capacities in finishing bridges that are so nuanced and, and unmeasurable and, and also so valuable and important. And, and, and that's what I was hearing just like when we move through those thresholds, so much more of what relationships can be are sitting waiting for us and, yeah. and you don't know it beforehand. There's just some subtle sense inside that this is to do it's like this difficult piece that doesn't seem worth it is really there to do for me and and you know once we've done it we can then come back to others and say hey it's worth it but until then it it just looks like uh you know jumping off a cliff and and hoping we have wings well you know in in our story i was ready to to jump off the bridge you know i was ready to complete the bridge but what what i wasn't ready to do was abandon him you know, and that renegotiation of the contract kept, like the contract was still alive. It was just, what do we do with this contract? And I think that was such a key piece because I was still in the conversation. And that was a promise that we made to each other in our vows was we stay in the conversation, that, that no matter what the conversation is, we stay in the conversation. And he, um, was so determined to, to make this marriage work at any cost. You know, he, I, I, like people that know my husband that haven't seen him in four years, when they see him, they're like, whoa, you are different. Like his underlying energy has completely transformed 
to, I, I mean, he's an intense human being. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but he is like a very intense human being. He runs a lot of energy through his nervous system. His capacity is quite large. He's one of those humans that he, he's not very good at um, sitting still because he has to do something. And when he directed that intensity to his own transformation, um, you know, it, it was, it, it's, it's almost like he's in a new incarnation in this life. You know, it, it's something to behold to be with somebody who is willing to change. Cause I think that's another piece of partnership or any type of marriage, like you were saying, business or, or sacred relationship is our own willingness to change really determines uh, because, you know, people say, I'm not changing for anybody. <laughs> and that is such a stupid thing that we do. Like, why would we, why would we say I'm not changing for anybody if that request for change is only going to up level your experience? And there's, there's a softening and a dissolving of ego that has to happen within that um, request. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that keeps us so alive in our marriage is that we've learned how to soften our ego to each other at this point. Like when my husband tells me something that I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a minute with that one. You know, I can, I have a choice in that moment. I can turn around and call him names or build resentment, fill my resentment cup, or I can take it home. You know, I can take it to my heart and I would, and say like, this man would never give me feedback for, like this for the sake of hurting me. He's noticing a place that I can step up and that that's the softening of the ego. And so I think that would probably be true in every relationship where we're in, where we're, we're, we're within trust, mm -hmm. but that trust is key. Yeah. yeah and it, it, it brings up this piece around it's like an internet meme that i loved a few years ago and it said um it's like a crowd of people and someone was like who wants change and everyone's like yeah and then it says who wants to change silence <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah totally and then we don't see that those two things are inextricably linked if yeah. we want change it's us that has to change and and it's so clear and obvious and and so good and there is, there is a loss. I think that's the piece that, that keeps us stuck is if we're invested in what we would lose in changing the who that we think we are, um, then we're gonna hold it all together and holding it all together includes holding all this, the heavy, dirty, messy stuff that we you know, just didn't let go of when we were growing up or you know, into our lives. Yeah. What you're talking about, it just makes me think of that whole concept of bringing yoga off the mat. And I know yoga is a, uh, has been a huge part of your life. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, the role that that's played and, and maybe a little bit about your work through yoga with people, like what you see it, its role as, what, what its strengths and maybe its weaknesses are uh, and as, as, a, as a kind of structured form of working with people. Um, yeah, anything you want to say about that? I mean, that's a really big question. Sure. <laughs> um, what I've come to realize about the practice of yoga and the way that we do it in the West is that for me, it's 
the, the classroom setting or that studio setting has become an excuse to talk about things that matter with people. And the real work of the practice of yoga is that self-recognition and that self-realization to have the softness to look within. And the movement itself, I mean, I obviously I love it. <laughs> you know, like we need to move our bodies and we need to keep our body um, limber and nimble and, and flexible and strong. And, you know, we're animals when it comes down to it. We are mammals. We're animals. And we've created a, a culture where we're not moving so much. And so that movement is definitely key. But where I love working more so is in the deeper transformational opportunities, whether it's a teacher training or a week intensive or, you know, there's a joke that um, the, this other teacher that I've worked with for a decade now, her name is Sasha Bahador, is a joke, like don't come to one of our retreats unless you want to change <laughs> because we don't mess around, you know, and um, where Sasha and I both have gone, although in different directions, is to the subtle body and I've become uh, really obsessed with the practice of yoga nidra. And this now in any studio class that I teach here is my, you know, I, I won't teach a flow class without a 30 minute nidra on the end of it. Um, because what I've come to recognize in our suffering as humans is that the more invested we are in our physical world, the less invested we are in our invisible world. And we are, you know, 99.9999% space and 0.00001% matter. And we're focusing on the matter so much more than we're focusing on the space. And so these subtle body practices, whether it's yin or nidra or, or meditation, uh, nidra, is, it, that's my gem. That's where I'm at. Um, connect us to the world beyond form. And when we're able to connect with the world beyond form, we connect to our majesty, our mystery, our unknown. We recognize that we're going to be safe no matter what. We connect to the part of ourselves that is eternal, that is ancient, that is infinite, that is wise. Um, you start to feel beyond you know, the aches and pains of muscles and joints and bones and into the subtle dialogue of the nervous system and the endocrine system. And so... Yeah, that, that, you know, typical Western yoga um, world for me is an excuse to talk about the other stuff. The gateway drug. And, yeah, it's the gateway drug, exactly. <laughs> and um, kind of going back to what I said about being inside your nervous system or being bossed by your nervous system, when we develop that relationship with that subtle flow of life force within us, or we develop a relationship with that feeling inside of each and every one of us that is uniquely you. Um, we also are simultaneously developing a relationship with uh, whatever you define as source or, or our own divinity. And um, I think that's what's missing in, in the world in general, because we are outsourcing instead of inner resourcing. We're outsourcing how to get out of pain instead of going to the inner resource of what's this really trying to say to me. And um, now at this point, it's kind of funny because I integrate astrology into everything. And astrology, I feel like, uh, discredits a lot of what I do. Because <laughs> I do work on such a, uh, like a scientific, technological, like understanding the physical body and the, the energetic body and the subtle body. 
Um, but what I've noticed within our own nervous system is that if we create coherence in our nervous system, meaning like one smooth hum, instead of being inundated with the 10,000 things, we've got this one really beautiful hum and, and, you know, in our brainwaves, they're coming into a coherent brainwave pattern. I think the easiest way to describe that is the difference when you're at a sporting event and everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. And then there's a break and there's, you know, noise, 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 noise. And you can't make out what any one person is saying. And then there's a breakaway or something and the whole crowd gets up and cheers and they're clapping together and they're chanting the same thing. And now this many voices become one voice. And so that's what happens in the nervous system when you create coherence we become much more um, connected to self and much more powerful. And that's where the guidance comes in with astrology. What's happening is if we're paying attention to the, the sun and the moon and, and these rhythms, then not only are we bringing ourself through the practice of yoga nidra into coherence, but now we're also bringing ourselves into coherence with a larger community. And so now this larger community is becoming that much more powerful to affect change. And when you look at the themes of astrology, if you just follow the sun, it goes through 12 areas of life over the course of a year. And we fine tune these 12 areas of life together. You know, like right now, the day that we're recording this, we're in Virgo season and it's about becoming your best self. And it's about how do I serve? And so now we've got this community. My online community has about um, 68 different countries downloading these practices. And I give, well, now I give two practices for the month, but like, it's like we're working on the same thing for, you know, from 68 different countries. We're focusing on how do I be my best self? How do I prioritize that which is most important to me? And how do I serve? And so now there's this wave of consciousness coming together. And next month, we're going to focus on relationships. And, you know, and it just goes on like this. And so now we're creating coherence, not just within ourselves, but within a larger community. And whether somebody believes that the planets are actually influencing us or not, this story or this archetype or this guidance can create a lot of, um, a lot of healing for culture, for humanity and for our species. Um, so that's, that's where I've gone with this. And the people who are, who are um, embracing the practice of yoga nidra I say Nidra and Nidra. I go back and forth all the time because my original teacher said Nidra and now I have teachers that say Nidra. Um, <laughs> um, what I've noticed with the people that are taking this practice on, whether it's through the Astro Nidras that I offer or just the practice in general, is that their, their sense of inner knowing, their ability to trust themselves, the striving in life, like, sorry, the inner knowing and the trust is increasing and the striving is decreasing. And the autonomic nervous system is where we're working in the practice and it's signaling your digestive system and your endocrine system and your cardiovascular system. And when you bring it into coherence and it comes back to this um, healing point, it brings all the other systems into that same healing point. And so this community is, is healing things they didn't know that needed to be healed. They're discovering an inner guidance that they've only read about, and it's the experience of it. And the, the potential um, understanding of what this life is all about is expanding huge. And, and it's, I mean, it's beautiful. I, I, I wish the practice upon everybody. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, I, I love that. And, and I read a bunch of Joe Dispenza and I, I really love, and I'm always looking to connect dots, you know, to me, everything is connected. And then I, I, I love science and I love learning about the practicalities of this physical world. And in, in me, there's no divorce of that from the kind of ethereal, esoteric, spiritual, mystical, um, that they are all part of the same reality and, and they are, you know, linked and, and woven together as a fabric. And I'm looking for how does that fabric actually work? And I'm willing to lay down what I currently hold for something that is clearly more um, kind of complete. And, you know, the, the idea of the, the subtle body tuning into these deeper levels of what we are, and, and I think of us as being leveled and dimensional, and that these different levels and dimensions have their own particular ways of movement and, and particular kind of frequencies or energies. And, and as we tune into them, we're like, I talk about it as it's like, um, have you ever used the cloning tool in, a, in like a, a, a visual software, like, a, like, a, a, like an image software? No. So there's this tool and it's a cloning tool. And so basically you can take the, what the image is over here and you can kind of paint it in another spot so it's 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 co-located right okay. bi-located and and it takes the quality of this one area and plants it in the in this other area and to me we're able to to bi-locate as as consciousness yeah and when we tune into these deeper levels of what we are that are subtler that are more uh, uh, you know in equanimity in balance in coherence when we tune into them we are bi-located, we're in this deeper place that is coherent, and we're existing in this nervous system that at least at this point is not developed as a coherent system. And we are planting or cloning that deeper quality and that deeper substance in our service nervous system. And that's what, that's what meditation is and does. That's why the research around meditation is so convincing and powerful. It's like we're, we're bringing the, the, the robust strength and wisdom of our deeper bodies and we're planting those in our surface body that is, you know, because of conditioning, because of, you know, believing we're separate from those deeper spaces has developed in this way that isn't coherent. And yeah. That we're able to, not just in a practice, we're able to live that way. And it is in the living of that way while the nervous system does everything that it does, that it over time becomes an integrated nervous system. And yeah, I just love when I hear people who have spent their life exploring and investigating and learning and they, they come back and I'm like, oh, yeah, that kind of that fits right into that, that sort of holistic fabric of how everything really works. Well, it's really interesting because we live in this, this world of division. You know, there's so many things that are dividing us, but the only thing we truly share is we're standing on the same earth and we're revolving around the same sun and we're looking at the same moon. And when we lay on our backs in a field, we're looking at the same stars. And, and it's undeniably true that our endocrine system is linked to light. And the original design of the body was when the sun goes down, we start getting doses of melatonin, it makes us sleepy. And that signals like a whole sequence of events within the endocrine system that ideally is healing us. You know, melatonin is responsible for our mating cycles and like our sleep cycles, but also like mating. And there's so many things that melatonin is linked to. And then when the sun rises, we start getting dose of serotonin and we wake up to serotonin and we start to get energy and, you know, 
And, you know, this is our, this, uh, the advent of light, of the light bulb <laughs> was the first endocrine system disruptor. It was the first thing that started to create hormonal imbalances in humans. And um, I think that that alone is just a piece that we're, where we can respect that there's a link. Um, and then, you know, you look at the moon and it's moving oceans. <laughs> it's moving oceans. And we are 70-ish percent water. And I think we would be so naive to think that it's not moving us in some way, you know, whether the, the um, exact theme or the philosophy, if you believe that or not, great. But in some way, the ocean is moving us, or sorry, the moon is moving us just like it's moving the ocean. You know, I had a, a woman in my, um, a 200-hour training that I ran in 2014, and she was a LA City Police, um, like, officer. And she said that the schedule of the police officers is based around the moon cycles because they know they need more uh, people on duty during a full moon than any other time. And so like, to me, that was so validating uh, that, you know, we are being influenced by this. And, and then with what you were saying about this multi-layered interdimensional, you know, th that we have so much more to us than what we think or what we have been taught, because ultimately what I see this as is a mass miseducation mm. that we have received. And we're going through this awakening of, oh, wait, we were educated. Pick a topic, <laughs> pick a topic, sexuality, money, healthcare, whatever, we've been miseducated. And we're going through this pretty profound phase of opening the door and, and opening the veil and looking at, wow, we haven't been educated to our potential. We've been educated to fit a mold. And when we open up the idea of coherence, not just with ourselves, but it's incredible that we're on this blue planet soaring in the sky with this you know, solar magnetism with these other planets in this, but then go even further and there's multiple solar systems and multiple galaxies and multiple, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's wild. And um, I think that choosing as a spiritual being to align with something so much greater than ourselves, we can go esoteric and say God or we could actually just go, what if I just align myself with the most proven thing that's bigger than myself, starting with earth and working into the solar system and then looking at, okay, we're in the Virgo arm of the Milky Way galaxy. What does that even mean? <laughs> you know, like there's something here to open to and to learn from um, that is influencing us and we are influencing it, it as well. And there's, there's, uh, there's, there's something really comforting to me about that you know yeah yeah agreed yeah one of the things in this podcast that i i want to do with all of my guests is invite them to share about a particular conversation that they've had um that for them for whatever reason really changed them and then i want to start to as i do more and more of these conversations to pull the threads through of like what is it what is it about certain conversations that have this ability to, to wake us up or change the whole trajectory of our lives so that maybe more of these conversations can start happening? So I'm just curious if, if as you look through your life, if there are any, it doesn't have to be the one conversation, but is there a conversation for you that stands out um, that really changed things for you? And if you could talk a little bit about it. Huh. Wow, that's a tough, tough one. Because there's so many. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I think the one with myself when I broke my back was the biggest conversation of a, a pretty, pretty major turning point. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have a, I don't know that I have a specific. Why, why don't you, why don't you tell me about that conversation then? So, you know, you, you were, you, what was going on in your life before that happened? And then tell me a little bit about what the dialogue was between you and your back or you and yourself or whatever that was. <laughs> well, I mean, I was pretty bratty. <laughs> you know, I knew that I was meant to be teaching yoga. Um, I'd even taught some classes. I'd even saved money to do my training a few times and spent it a few times um, before that. And I kept ignoring the call. And I kept taking these jobs. So it was like WestJet and then I moved into oil and gas and then I worked in this, and this, you know, event work and I was continually trying to fit, you know, into a real, I'm quoting <laughs> air quotes, real job. Um, and when I was laying there, it was actually really perfectly timed because I just moved to a new city. I didn't know a ton of people. Um, I'll never forget my cousin, who was somebody who was really, really close to me throughout university, drove from Saskatoon to Edmonton to come sit with me. And, and that was, that was a, a lesson in being there for the people who mean the most to you, you know, like to, to, to show up for people. Um, and, and that's kind of where, where everybody that came, I mean, there were local people that came, but I didn't have longevity with them but these people that drove long distances to be with me was amazing but you know the the real the real conversation was my own understanding of how okay it was all going to be you know like when there were people I mean I'm in the hospital <laughs> I have all these surgeries you know it was it was you know a bit of an ordeal um, I knew I was the one calming people down. I was the one that was like, I know I'm going to be okay. I was the one that, that recognized, uh, my own capability, my own ability to heal my own resilience. And then it smartened me up because I, in the, I also in that moment recognized that if I didn't, if I didn't step up more of these challenging events would happen until I did. Um, and so it turned into an experience of gratitude, <laughs> you know, like, thank you universe. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't have listened if you didn't do this. Sorry, sorry for not, sorry for not listening earlier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry for, for forcing this up, like, you know, making you have to do this to me. <laughs> um, because you know, it was, it was all for me. It didn't happen to me. It happened for me, you know? Um, I'm going to pause really quick because my computer is going to die. Give me one second to be sure. right back. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just got the little warning. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a, a lesson in my own ability, my own capability. It sounds like as you were in that, what really freed you was 
I think often we're, we're relating to like, what's the worst thing that could happen and how do I avoid that? And when we make peace with what we might've thought of as the worst, it's all freedom. We, we, we see it's really an open road. Yeah. And, um, so for you, was that the real kind of access point to, to stepping into a new life or was there something else? Definitely. It was where I committed to never doing something that wasn't purposeful. It like right down to agreeing to go to a party that I didn't want to go to, you know, like it was like the little things and the big things. Like I wasn't going to go and work for somebody else anymore. I wasn't going to not do my training. I wasn't going to, um, yeah, I wasn't going to, go and do something because of an expectation anymore. It, I really, it's like I took the reins on my life. It was like, okay, <laughs> you know, if, if the, it can be this precious, uh, I have to respect it and treat it as such. And that's such an important lesson that I think so many people aren't clear about, which is the big things and the little things are not separate. They're, they're yeah. not different. If you think, that you don't need to do what's really meaningful in all the little things, but you're going to do it in the big things. It's just not, that's not how it works yeah. and, uh, to really see the, the, just the, the, the continuity of, of what I invest in the little things is what I show up with in the big things. Um, and that's such a key lesson for us to, to move forward in a, in a way that's purposeful. Yeah, I think I started, and I wouldn't have necessarily had this language, but I started to recognize the ways that I was abandoning myself. Mm. You know, like every time I compromise, not that compromise is bad, compromise is important, but every time I compromised um, that meaning or that purpose, I was abandoning myself. And I got to such a great state of abandonment that I had to break my back in order to even recognize that I had left myself, you know? And, you know, at that time too, leading up to that, I was drinking a lot, you know? I was in, uh, um, I was making poor decisions in many different areas of my life. And every one of those things, like drinking was abandoning myself. Making a poor decision was abandoning myself. Like there was a theme of just abandoning myself for what? I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was an addiction to the thrill or the, or the, I mean, I'm not an alcoholic, but like the addiction of that escape. Um, there's an addiction to validation. There's, you know, just, I, I, I guess I had to change what I was addicted to, to be, purpose, you know, cause we, we are designed for addiction. That's the way our, that's the way our endocrine system works is we're designed for addiction. And so I had to change what I was, uh, allowing myself to be addicted to in my personality or in my actions that then I, now I'm not abandoning myself, <laughs> you know, and that was 11 years ago now, almost 12 years ago now that, that I broke my back and I have not made those kinds of poor decisions. Although in, you know, like I said, in my marriage, that was one of those moments where I was like, how did I get myself here? Like 
I made such a commitment to really be listening. Um, but even in that, that juncture and that crossroad, I was listening. <laughs> you know, I didn't actually abandon myself in that. And standing for myself was the loyalty to self, you know, standing for what I need or what I, what I wanted in my marriage and in my home. That was the opposite of abandoning, abandoning myself. So, um, yeah, it, I feel really good about how that has shaped everything in my life. Yeah, and I think we do ourselves a, dis a disservice when we think if we have some kind of enlightenment or awakening experience that now we're going to get it all right. Mm. This ever unfolding, iterating awakening of what's more real and what's deeper and, and what's next. And that yeah. <clears throat> in the living of that, there's all sorts of slipping and tripping and falling that's just a part of the dance. And if we don't make any of that wrong, then we, we are consistently just moving well in it all. We're, we're bringing grace to it all. And, yeah. and that's been such a huge lesson for me is it's not about getting it all right. It's about being honest and then being true to what I find in that honesty. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, <laughs> that's another thing that I love about the astrology is that when you look at somebody's natal chart, you can see there's a time it's like a clock kind of, and you can tell like, Oh, this is going to be a time of struggle, but it's impermanent. <laughs> it's impermanent. So this transit may be two years or this transit may be three years. And that's pretty serious transit, like three years of suffering, three years of big lessons. That's, that's big. And at the same time, what I love about that is that you can expect to be worked on <laughs> for two years or you can expect to be worked on for three years and then there's going to be relief and in talking to people uh to bring it back to one of your earlier questions about depression or anxiety if we set that path in so deeply during those times of of initiation and we don't recognize that this is just a phase then it can become a lifelong um, integration of that pattern but if we can also recognize that this is just a time and there is an end and there's relief where we grow and integrate from the experience that is challenging or the suffering that has arisen, then um, we don't integrate it in a way that it becomes a core piece of us. And, and I think that's also incredibly liberating to you know, recognize these cycles, <laughs> these phases. And, um, you know, the, the teachings are always the same, you know, like they're, that everything is changing. You know, I think you probably Vipassana meditated like Anicca, Anicca, like <laughs> it's all changing constantly. But when we're in it, it's hard to see that, that it's changing, that it's not permanent. Sometimes I was talking, um, to a girlfriend who was overdue pregnant. She was like, at this point, I feel like I'm going to be pregnant forever. <laughs> and I'm like, but you're not. <laughs> like, it's going to come out. <laughs> Baby's coming. Um, but, you know, it's hard to see when we're in the thick of it that it's, that it's impermanent. Yeah, and so that's, that's, I mean, another, that's another thing that I love about that as a tool, as a life tool, is you're like, okay, so if I can make it to Christmas and really dive into what I'm getting here, then there's going to be a new phase coming in or a new energy coming in, which gives a lot of hope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I talk about that piece uh, as we paint our future with our story about the present based on the past. 
Yeah. And, and so then it's, it's always forever, which is such a yeah. silly thing in a finite body that's always changing to, to draw that conclusion. Yeah. Jana, it's been a total pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> if, if people are wanting to connect with you more or kind of dive more deeply into what you're up to, where can they find you? The easiest, okay, so there's a couple places. The easiest is just my website. It's just my name, janaromer.com, um, J-A-N-A-R-O-E-M-E-R.com. Um, Instagram is the same. It's Janice underscore Renee. And, uh, you know, we all have this love-hate relationship with the social medias. But um, my, my Instagram is intentional and purposeful and educational. And it's where I kind of keep a lot of the updates going. It's more astrology-driven than anything else, which is kind of funny because it's not my main thing. Um, but it is kind of my main thing. <laughs> um, there's also this free meditation app called Insight Timer. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Um, I, I use it. Yeah, it's amazing. I've got some yoga nidra practices uh, on there. And then if somebody chooses to have the paid version, I've got a course, a 10-day course on there called Overcoming Overcome Obsessive Thinking, which, you know, I, I the, it is relevant to that for sure. But more so, it's like all my best practices that I use every day in my own life. And so it should be like a manual for being human and living inside your nervous system is what it should be called. <laughs> it might not sell as well. <laughs> no, I don't think it would sell as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that's a great one. And it's nice because it's no more than 15 minutes a day. And I, the way I structured it was these little micro lessons. Um, and I have another one coming out mid-September that is the Yamas and the Yamas. So it's like philosophy. And I made it a multi-purpose course where there's education there's meditation and then um, you can download these worksheets to have contemplation and journaling as well um, and then my main offering are these what I'm doing are these astro nidras and so this I mentioned earlier really briefly it's a it's a yoga nidra practice that is themed off the current astrology and they're just a really simple download one day I'm going to have an, uh, a an app but for now it's a simple download <laughs> and you can take them into your bed in the morning first thing when you wake up or as you're going to sleep or that three two or three o'clock slump and they're really nice and what's nice about that is yeah it's connecting to a community from 68 different countries there's so many people doing them monthly right now that um not only are we working on ourselves, but we're working with the collective. And in that, I have the Nidra practice, but I also have um, these cosmic walking meditations, which are fun. You know, like what I, what I noticed in my own practice was that laying down was great. There was an integration, but getting up and walking and like open eyes and getting myself into coherence while I'm walking, you know, to get my tea or whatever it is, um, it changed something. And so the cosmic walking meditations are more action oriented. We follow Mars around the Zodiac. And so right now Mars is in Virgo and it's like, okay, hey, what are your top three priorities for the day? And you're just like getting super clear and aligned with your top three priorities. And then it's like, okay, inevitably a distraction is going to come up. What's your distraction? What's your poison? And what are you going to do when that distraction comes up so that you stay on track? And then you imagine the end of your day and you see yourself at the end of your day being successful and proud of what you did and and so you have that end day visual with an opportunity to take it into the future as well. So they're much more functional, but, but really powerful as well. So those are my main things. Yeah. And then once this baby's a year old, I'm getting back into training. So week intensives, I don't do the 200 hours anymore, but I do week long yoga nidra intensives. 
And they are, you know, everybody that's done them, I've been doing them for a while now. Um, they say this is a point that's like that turning point in their life where life was one way before the training, you do this week intensive, and then you get this reset of your nervous system, and then life takes on a new shape. And so those are my, those are my babies. That's my favorite. <laughs> well, when's the due date? Uh, well, mid-October, so we're getting really close. And then my first training is October 17th in Portugal. Uh, it's actually 10 days. We're going October 17th the following year. The following year. Okay. So one year later, October 17th to the 27th. That's cutting it awfully close. Oh, God, no. I'm, <clears throat> I, am, I, as a Canadian, feel entitled to my year off. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do. Yeah. So... Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again. I, I really uh, wish you all the best in everything and with this new me coming into the world. I hope we get a chance to sit down and chat again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been really nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah take care. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper.